Welcome back to Revive School, Lesson 22. We're going to wrap up this week with Isaiah 47, 48, 49. I'm Tom Schieffer from Indiana, pastoring up there. And this has just been absolutely a joy. Gordy and Kyle have both talked about how these passages in Isaiah just rocked our world. And I'm going to tell you, these today are going to do that, at least I pray that, because they rocked mine. Uh, are going to, our target and where we're going towards is Isaiah 49. That's where we want to go, and we want to really end up in the second serv- servant song. But there's so much here that I want to get into as we're leading up to it. Um, we're not going to spend any time in 47 other than to say that in 47, God is calling Babylon to lament because they've trusted in magic and astrology. Uh, let's put our, our clock up here, or our timeline up here, not a clock. It's a timeline. Remember, Isaiah is still prophesying. He's focused on everything that's happening in the Babylonian captivity. He's highlighting what's going on there. We've been talking about Cyrus. We're going to come back to him in just a second. But God knows that Babylon is messed up, that they're trusting in so many other things. We're going to deal with that a lot when we get to Daniel and some of the other prophets and all that comes in there. But he says, you trusted in magic and astrology. Some things don't change. And so he highlights that. And then God gives Israel new promises for their deliverance. Again, as he's focusing on captivity, that they're going to be in captivity, he's saying, you're going to be delivered. And then God gives marching orders at the end of Isaiah 48. We're going to get there. I want to run into this just a little bit. Uh, let's go to verse 12 in, in 48. I hate skipping over all of this, but there is so much in all of these three chapters. God says, listen to me, Jacob, and Israel, the one called by me, I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. His name right there, first and last, Alpha and Omega, the consistency, Old Testament to New Testament. My own hand, he began, my own hand founded the earth. I'm the creator. And my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summoned them, they stood up together. All of you assemble and listen. I mean, you you almost get that. I want you to hear this. Who among the idols has declared these things? He's just been talking about idols. He's talking uh, talking about magic. He's been talking about astrology. They can't do this. But the Lord loves him. He will accomplish his will against Babylon, and his arm will be against the Chaldeans. The Lord loves him him. He is talking here of our guy that we've been talking these last several days, Cyrus. Now, in all our conversations about Cyrus, 
I, I, I always chuckle because my hometown is Bucyrus, Ohio. It is named, I mean, the founders named it because it was a beautiful area and they named it after King Cyrus. Beautiful Cyrus. So I've known about Cyrus, at least of him, my entire life. But not like this week. Not like this week. Remember in chapter 45, verse 1, that Gordy taught on and how Cyrus was anointed. Cyrus, God's anointed, 150, 200 years before Cyrus was ever even thought of, even on the throne. And then here in verse 14, the Lord loves him. Guys, what does that impress to you? That the Lord loves him and he's talking about Cyrus. It's especially to uh, Isaiah's audience, it's who would be Israel and uh, the Jews. He loves everyone. And just because they're not chosen people, he still loves them. He still loves them. But to actually articulate this, this at the time that, that Isaiah is prophesying this, they have no clue who Cyrus is. When Babylon takes all of Judah into captivity, how many years? 70 years. 70 years. Keep that in mind. That's important. They're in the midst of this 70 years, basically a generation. It feels like forever. They're reflecting back on Isaiah, and they're going, Cyrus? What good is Cyrus? And it's going to come. But he says, God, the Lord, loves him. And I want to do this, because this gets really kind of fun. There's only one other ruler in the Old Testament that God says, that the Scriptures account and say he loved. The only other king that is said to be loved by God is Solomon. That's in 2 Samuel 12, 24. We don't need to go there, but just know that in the scriptural accounts, only two rulers God says he loves. One is Solomon, who is wisest of the wise, and the other is Cyrus, not even a Jew. He's a Persian. And this is scandalous. This is radical. Uh, I read somewhere, and I can't document it, I wish I could, uh, but that when Isaiah's prophecy was shown to King Cyrus, calling him by name 200 years before, um, Cyrus was pretty astonished. And look at what he says. I love him. He will accomplish his will against Babylon. So the Persian Empire to the east of Babylon is going to come in, his arm will be against the Chaldeans. Again, another name for Babylon. Everything that God has said, these guys that have taken Judah into captivity are going to be defeated by another king who's going to come in, who God loves, who God has anointed, who God is going to use, who eventually will send all of them that are in captivity that will go back in that whole sequence that we saw with Zerubbabel and with Nehemiah and with Ezra, send them back to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem. God has a plan. And he sent this message 
through Isaiah by means of his Holy Spirit. I, God says, I have spoken. Yes, I have called him, I have brought him, and he will succeed in his mission. Wow. This is mind-blowing. I'd never thought of any of this. Verse 16, approach me and listen to this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time anything existed, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. And Cyrus is not going to be used against Israel. He's going to be used against Babylon. Be assured. The Holy Spirit is directing this. This is coming from God. Is there any doubt? I mean, the credibility that Isaiah is coming up with over and over and over again. This is what the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel says. I am the Lord your God who teaches you for your benefit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, this is great. If only you had paid attention to my commands. Duh! <laughs> if only... Anyone else want to reiterate that? If only I had paid attention to his commands. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea through everything that's going on. In our study through Kings and through Chronicles, everything that we saw that's going to happen after Hezekiah, absolutely, everything that's going to happen in Babylon. If you would have paid attention, your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. And he keeps on going. Your descendants would have been as countless as the sand and the offspring of your body like its grains. Their name would not be cut off or eliminated from my presence. God listened. He wanted to bless Israel. But Israel wouldn't cooperate. But now Israel's going to have one more chance. And here at the end of 48, look at what he does. He says, leave Babylon. You may be in captivity. In captivity of 70 years, they may be reading Isaiah saying, is there any hope? He says, yes, the day is coming. Leave Babylon. Flee the Chaldeans. Declare with a shout of joy and proclaim this. Let it go out to the end of the earth. Announce the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Yeah, Kevin. When they have been saying... What do I mean, leave Babylon? Because they're not in Babylon yet, right? Right. Isaiah is such a three-dimensional, maybe five-dimensional prophet. He is on so many different levels all at the same time. So, yes, he's speaking into them, and they're going, we're not in Babylon yet. And yet, he's speaking to them in Babylon, and they're reading it in Babylon. He's talking about what's coming with the Messiah all at the same time and the freedom of the captives. And he's talking about what's coming at the end. Multiple dimensions, all at the same time. I, I'm blown away. How in the world did he ever keep any of this straight? Um, and and it's incredible to watch. So yes, absolutely. They're going. Um, we're okay. Assyria. They just got. You know, they got handed their lunch. We're we're safe now. No, you're not. Um, you know, how many times do we fall into that as well? Um, it's, just, it's just rough. And you have to wonder if he second-guessed himself when he wrote, like, a guy named Cyrus down. Like, who's that? You know, like, you try to probably figure out the prophecy yourself or something. And The bottom line, I think, is the Holy Spirit was really on Isaiah for a lengthy period of time. And so that leads us 
to Isaiah 49. That's, that's the focus I want to get to today. And here is the second of the four servant songs. We talked about a couple of days ago about how the servant of the Lord is the Messiah. The servant song in Isaiah 49 is verses 1 to 13. Alan Redpath said that, said that this chapter is full of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the words quoted could not possibly have their complete fulfillment in any other save in our Savior. Uh, just beautiful, beautiful words about the servant, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Emmanuel, that's our word for Isaiah. Let's never forget that because he's focusing on God with us. Coastlands, verse 1, listen to me. Distant peoples, pay attention from everywhere. Listen up, pay attention. The Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. Before I was born, the Lord called me. We already highlighted that this was, as Gordy shared yesterday, out of the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1.5. I chose you before. Um, does it remind you of any other places in Scripture? Does it trigger anything else, guys? When the angel comes and says to Mary, you, you're going to have a child and name him. You are going to give him the name Jesus. Now look at what he carries on with verse 2. He made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hands. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. Again, this is the servant, the servant of God speaking. And this element of the mouth of the servant of the Lord being like a sharpened sword is a really prophetic image that comes several times in the New Testament. Ephesians 6, 17, Hebrews 4, 12, Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 12, and verse 16, and in Revelation 19, verse 15. It also, dis the Messiah displays the Lord's splendor, and it comes forth in such great power. Look at verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel. I will be glorified in him. Uh, since the rest of this chapter, the context is on the Messiah. This is not one of the references to Israel as the servant. This is why in many of the translations, it's capitalized as my servant. This isn't talking about the people of Israel. This is talking about the Messiah. Um, this... It is really, really incredibly important because the Messiah comes from Israel, is representative of the nation, and fulfills the name Israel, which means governed by God. But significantly, in the midst of all of this, verse 4 says there's a suffering and a loss that the Messiah feels. But I myself said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in futility, yet my vindication is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. When Jesus is tempted, there's got to be some discouragement. Those 40 days in the wilderness, there's, there's, there's something in the fully God, fully man element that, that this is real, and Isaiah is seeing that even at this time. When the disciples are, are messing up, there's several times that he's very discouraged with them. In the Garden of Gethsemane, 
It is a hard time. And Isaiah, here, clear back here, seven, eight hundred years before, understands that the fully man element is going to, is going to feel this. But even though he ministers in these difficult and discouraging circumstances, he never gives in to it. Why? My vindication is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. God's got something else, because the Messiah is going to be honored in God's eyes. Look at verse 5. And now says the Lord, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. Uh, anything jump at you out of this verse again? I mean, this, these, these words are so common in so many, and, and phrases are so common in so many ways. I think it's, it goes back to that forming in the womb again, jumps out, jumped out to me, you know. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, go to Romans chapter 11, verse 26. There's a tie-in. There's a, a corollary here. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. Notice how that parallels verse 5. Isaiah's prophecy and Paul in Romans sees it and articulates it for us. But he's not just there. He's not just going to restore God's people Israel. He's chosen to redeem the Gentiles. Go to verse 6. He says... It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations or Gentiles to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. A light to the nations. The, the, the whole imagery of scripture is coming into fruition in the servant song spoken through our prophet Isaiah. I'll make you a light for the nations. I'm going to hold that light up. Um, my salvation to the ends of the earth. Uh, go with me, Kevin, for a second. Luke 2, verses 25 to 35, but I want you to go to verse 30, 31, and 32. Here is Simeon, who takes the child Jesus into his arms at the temple, and he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, talking about God. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. Do you think Simeon was understanding the prophecy of Isaiah is in my hands? This is mind-blowing. Let's go back to verse 6 for just a second, Kevin, and show, show here. In the last line, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth, the Messiah is not simply going to bring salvation. He would be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah is wasting no words. And then there's a acclaim that comes along with that. Look at verse 7. This is what the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One says, to one who is despised, to one abhorred by people, to a servant of rulers, kings will see and stand up, and princes will bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, 
the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. If you were living before the time of Jesus, and you heard this prophecy, what would you think? Somebody's pretty important's coming if the kings are going to stand up and the princes bow down. Yeah. This king who's going to get that kind of response is the one who's despised. He's abhorred by people and a servant of rulers. This is such a picture of Jesus. And yet it made no sense. The Messiah would be hated, rejected, and despised. That's absolutely incredible. It makes no sense whatsoever when you're looking at the Holy One of God who's going to just knock over all of the bad guys, whether they're Babylonian or Assyrian or Persian or any other. And yet this is exactly what happened. And the servant of the Lord is going to oversee the restoration of the land and the establishing of a peaceable kingdom. That's verses 8 to 11. Look at this. Take a look. This is what the Lord says, verse 8. I will answer you in a time of favor, and I will help you in the day of salvation. I will keep you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people. Look at that, look at that ver- verbiage again. I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people. Not just to give a covenant to the people. You're going to be a covenant for the people. To restore the land. To make them possess the desolate inheritances. That's going to come across really big from Babylon. Saying to the prisoners, come out. And to those who are in darkness, show yourself. They will feed along the pathways and their pastures will be on all the barren Heights. Oh, wow. He's going to bring it all. Jesus' ministry, the Messiah's ministry, is going to free people from bondage, from imprisonment. He's going to bring it all. Are there any examples in Jesus' ministry that fulfills exactly what he's saying here? I, I don't even have, I mean, there's too many to number. I didn't even just come up with illustrations for our purposes here today. But he sets the prisoner free. Notice, uh, raises Lazarus from the dead. He, he, how many women that he touched and he changed. Mary Magdalene, and it goes on and on. The woman who had the, the flow of blood. The, uh, the number of, of individuals, the, the, the men filled with demons. He brings it all out. You're in darkness? Show yourselves. You're a prisoner. Come out. I'm going to change everything. And he goes on, verse 10. They will not hunger or thirst. The scorching heat or sun will not strike them, for their compassionate one will guide them and lead them to springs of water. Oh, living, living water. In the immediate sense, this was going to refer to God's supply and the sustaining of everything that is about to come. And even as they go into captivity, because he's focusing so much on the Babylonian captivity. But in the larger sense, the big sense, that Messiah sense, it speaks of the mercy and provision of God for people as they return to him. Um, as I was looking at Mindy's painting, there's something here that, that just struck me. There's so many layers of perspective. There is the up close. There is the near. There is the far. And then there's the way back. And then there's the sky. Notice in Isaiah's prophecy, and as he's talking through all of this, there's the immediate. There's the close by. There's the short-term 
prophecy, short term is 200 years away. But then there's the long term. And then there's the fulfillment of it all. I'm in awe. And he doesn't stop there. I will make my mountains into a road. My highways will be raised up. How many times have we heard that this week? And, And look at this. I will make all my mountains into a road. How many mountains? All. All. And all means all. So in other words, all of those things you're going to face, all of those things that come in the way, the obstacles, the loneliness, the trials, uh, the sorrow, they're all going to be made into a road. God's going to turn them all around. And notice, too, they're my mountains. I'm going to use them. It's not just uh, by happen chance that this happens. I'm going to use them all. And right there in the midst of the trials, right there in the midst of the mountains, right there in the midst of all of it, Christ is there. The Messiah is there. And he's going to use them all. Look at verse 12. See, these will come from afar, from the north and from the west, and from the land of Sinem. Where is the land of Sinem? Anybody ever heard of Sinem? I've never heard of Sinem. So I looked it up. Some think it's a place in Egypt around Aswan, down in the southern part of Egypt. Some identify it with China. One guy I read, he theorizes that Isaiah is being intentionally unclear. He makes up a place just to say, from wherever they are, God's going to bring them back. I don't know, but it's from the far reaches. And God's going to bring back those captivities. And then he's going to comfort his people. He brings it together, hence the title, Book of Comfort, for the second half. Shout for joy, you heavens. Earth rejoice. Mountains break into joyful shouts. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Oh, he's going to bring salvation. The light of the world. I I don't have time to get into all of this, but you know what? These come out. Paul and Barnabas actually quote and bring the gospel to the Gentiles in Antioch, and they actually quote Isaiah 49.6. And the response of the Gentiles in Antioch is pure joy. It's recorded in Acts chapter 13, verses 48 to 49. Look at what he says. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. So the message of the Lord spread through the whole region. As this prophecy got released, everybody rejoiced, and they came back. Verse 14 and, and for, for our purposes here, we're going to kind of really bring this to a conclusion very quickly. Zion says, again, that name that brings the whole land and the whole people. Zion says, the Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. Whiners, I'm sorry. And so many times we do this. We do this to God. It doesn't matter what all he's promised. It doesn't matter. And we start whining about it. Oh, you don't really, you don't really like me and you've abandoned me and you've forgotten me. The rest of Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 50 that you'll get to tomorrow answers that question. The one that many have asked and responded to since. The Lord does care. And the Lord proclaims his love and his faithfulness to Zion. Because what does he say in 15? Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, 
yet I will not forget you. Look, look, I have inscribed you in the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. As we wrap up here today, as we wrap up here, look at verse 16. This is about the Messiah. And he says, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. He doesn't forget. And he's going to pay the ultimate price. I do not forget you. Take a look. It's like Jesus saying to Thomas, touch my palms, touch my feet, put your finger in my side. I have not forgotten you. I am the Holy One of Israel. I am there for you. With such love, how could he ever, ever forget his people? Oh, let's breathe into Isaiah and let Isaiah breathe into us and let God show us even more what he's doing.